Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply placing a trade shouldn't be complicated it should be smooth as butter the fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission u.s stock and etf trades no account minimums and fractional shares trading fidelity where nothing comes between you and the trade that's smooth download our app free from the app store or google play Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your fourth cousin, twice removed, Allie Ward, back with a familial historical episode of Ologies. So you are here because people made babies with each other. And out of all of the gametes and all of the gonads, you became a collection of molecules and you're suspended in a web of family. Even a cockroach technically has grandparents and cousins. Isn't that weird? Your cat might have an uncle. And if you have children, gaze at them. They may have children who have children. And then those children's might not even know your damn name. They'll just know you're dead. But before we get into it, First, a quick thank you to the select slice of listeners who are also patrons. You know who you are. You make the show possible. Thank you to everyone spreading the word with your mouth or with your tweets or by wearing my face on your chest via ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone who boosts the show for others to see by hitting subscribe and rating it. That actually works. And leaving reviews like sweet, sweet Tyra Mail for me to see, such as this fresh evaluation from DC Doppelganger who says, feeling sad and monotonous, life getting you down. Listen to this podcast. Ologies reminds you about how amazing the world around you actually is. Thanks, Dad Word. Stay curious, everyone. We'll do DC, I promise. Okay, genealogy. The first topic ever to not be an ology. Look at it. Genealogy? What is this? The Berenstain Bears? It's an allergy? What the heck, man? So genealogy comes from the root word gena, meaning to give birth to, like Genesis. And genealogy is not the study of genetics and how DNA works. That's just called genetics. So this was news to me. Now, genealogy is the tracing of family origins. And in Old English, it was called Folktalu, meaning folktales, but the allergy and not ology is because the O in ologies is borrowed from the first word anyway. So my point is that this podcast should actually just be called Logies. And to be honest, I'm not really emotionally prepared to process that. Also, it was taken my laptop 150 episodes to not correct this, my life's work, into eulogies or logies, which it's done in business emails. So now we know the ology, allergy is as good as an ology. So this week's allergist, I suppose, has been in this field for three decades, starting as a personal passion that 
just consumed him into making it a job. And I was introduced to him by someone who worked to publish his latest book, which is called 161920 Africans, which just came out this past July. And I immediately ordered the book. I was so happy he was down to pop into a sound booth in Portland to chat with me about his passion, tracing family histories and chasing down records and also about mystery novels and capes, questions you should ask your relatives, U.S. history and how we treat the past, how to heal from our individual legacies, the joy of cracking a case, DNA tests, technology, brunch revelations, and how everywhere you look, there's family. So pull up a chair and absorb the stories of two-time author, Total Peach, distant relative to Tom Hanks, and perhaps your relative as well, genealogist Stephen Hanks. I'm sure you get that with a lot of Stevens. I do, I do. My name is spelled with a PH, as you probably noticed. And yes, when it was funny when I introduced myself, they they say Steve. Okay, Steve, nice to meet you. Yeah, Steve, or is it Steven? Um, and now you are a genealogist. Yes. And you've been a genealogist for quite a while now. Yeah, I started like in '89. Yeah, Mm -hmm. when I was like, uh, God, how old was I? I was. Oh, about 30 years old. And that's, uh, I got the bug. Uh, I was over at my dad's house uh, that day in uh, summer, July, and he was uh, watching the baseball game. And he handed me this letter that he got from a cousin in Kansas. And he says, read this. And uh, of course, I didn't know anything about my family's history. Uh, you know, I'm just a kid growing up in Portland, Oregon. And so mm-hmm. he shows me this uh, letter. I started reading it, and it's a, an obituary out of a newspaper, and all these relatives' names are listed in this obituary. Uh, and it's on my dad's side of the family. And I just said, wow, I don't know who these people are. And that's mm-hmm. what that's what got it started right there. I said, I got to find out who these people are. I got to find out about the history of my family. And uh, so that's how it got started. <laughs> 89. Yeah. And what was the first thing you did back in 89? We had libraries and microfiche and the Dewey Decimal <laughs> System. <Yes. laughs> like, you, no microfilm readers. Yeah. The microfiche. Yes. Totally. Totally. No, no internet, no clicking of the mouse. Uh, you know, it was old school all the way. And old school ways involved making the two to three hour drive from Portland to Seattle's National Archives. And that houses 58,000 cubic feet of records. That's a lot of records. All about the Pacific Northwest for Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and now Alaska. But just in the past few weeks, this is breaking news, historians are rightly PO'd that the government wants to sell this building because the techie Seattle location has become so valuable. And a building sale would mean moving all of those records of the Pacific Northwest to Missouri or California, making the journey for people much longer and let's face it, mostly impossible. And no, you can't just jump on the information superhighway. A lot of those ledgers and records haven't even been digitized. So genealogy research, like family trees, still has its roots in the past. Well, when I started getting interested in this field and wanting to learn more, I had to learn the rules of, of the game and and how the, the professional genealogists did it. And so I learned about census records, tax records, um, 
you know, land deeds and all that sort of thing, courthouse records, and just on and on and on, museums. So I said, well, let me start with the census records. That sounds pretty easy enough. You know, every 10 years they have a census. And, uh, of course, they put a privacy restriction on the first 70 years. They don't release it to the public. So the most recent um, census that was available to me at that time was, I believe, the 1920 census. Yeah, 1920. Mm -hmm. And But they had no National Archives um branch in Portland, I could either fly to Washington, D.C., well, that that probably wasn't going to work, or they said Uh you could go to Seattle, Washington, they have a branch there, so I would just take off whenever I could and just drive up three hours up to Seattle and just uh, spend time looking at the old microfilm reels and putting the old microfilm on, you know, cranking the machine, and and boom, there they were. I found my grandparents in uh, Manhattan, Kansas, I started getting excited, 1920. And the genealogist rule, this is the genealogist rule, Allie, is Mm -hmm. work your way back from what you know to what you don't know. That's the rule. Never do it the other way around. Never go to what you don't know and try to work your way up to the present because oh. you don't know who those people are in the past, right? Yes. So you don't know what, what journey or what path you're going to be on. So start with what you know and work your way back. So I found my grandparents' names. I said, okay, I'm on the right track. And I uh, just started working my way back. But it started getting tricky as you get, you know, further back in time. And uh, that's what even got me more excited because, you know, I'm like a detective, you know, like the Perry Mason, you know. Yeah. You know, just start looking <laughs> under the rocks. And so uh went to 1910, the 1900 census. And this was really getting exciting. I finally was able to locate my great-grandparents knew their names and it just blew me away you know uh, found them in kansas and found out that they had moved to kansas from mississippi and the thing about that experience was they came from mississippi under a a different set of living as you as you know where i'm coming from you know slavery you know (laughs) kind of the slavery thing so that was a big uh shockeroo but Stephen's first book was 2013's A Key Tree, A Descendant's Quest for His Slave Ancestors on the Eskridge Plantations. And he has such an amazing way of writing about the process of genealogy through his own narrative and how one discovery can kind of ignite another. The further you go back in time, I was able to find them on the 1880 census. And um, the 1890 census, I guess, was burned in a fire in 1921. Oh, wow. So that's, yeah, that's something that all genealogists, if you're studying Greek, Italian, uh, whatever your, you know, ancestry is, that's something that you have to live with. The 1890 census is gone forever. Wow. So, yeah. Stephen told me that through the 1870 census, he discovered that his grandparents lived in a little town called Duck Hill, Mississippi, hailing from what is now Montgomery County, the same place that Oprah Winfrey's family is from. Small world, but big deal, given that Oprah Winfrey is like the closest thing this country has had to a queen. There they were, 1870, June something. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. There they were. Oh my. Um, never met these uh, family members, but 
these were my ancestors. And so when I got to that point, I was just in heaven, you know. But the problem is, is you know, you going beyond 1870 is the, is the trick for, you know, as far as African-American genealogy. But I enjoyed, you know, doing it for, I've, I've had many different clients, many different people, just even friends that I've done it for, for all type of different Italian um Greece, uh, so forth. So it's it's exciting. And you've established yourself as a genealogist. You've written multiple books. You've consulted on multiple documentaries. And, you know, going back a little bit to your own history, were you always someone who liked mystery novels, like detective novels? Like what? I did. Yeah. <laughs> was that kind of in your genes? Oh my God. Sherlock Holmes. I can remember as a kid just <laughs> staying up late at night and just watching the Sherlock Holmes with, uh, who was the, who was the guy that was playing that? But yeah, uh, you know, there was, it was, it always had to be this one actor that played Sherlock Holmes. He was the one that I, I fell in love with. I can't remember his name right off the bat, but. Oh, um, look it up. My guess is that this is Ronald Howard, who in nearly 40 episodes of Detective Capers portrayed the caped icon. What are you doing anyway? Research. Research? P.S. Side note, I just learned that that cape is called an Inverness cape, and it's named after a rainy region in the Scottish Highlands, where Scottish wear this sleeveless cloak thing because it allows for easier access to their sporan, which is their long hairy fanny pack coin purse that hangs over their junk area. Anyway, yes, Sherlock Holmes loved a good problem to solve and on the topic of clever Scots. But I loved, loved him. Sherlock was, was my guy. And then, of course, you know, James Bond. I mean, who who's not going to like James Bond? You know, the Sean Connery. I know I love you, James. But yeah, I, I totally was into the uh, into the, the mysteries and uh, the detectives early on. Definitely. For sure. And I after you were handed this obituary and you started driving up to Seattle to look in the archives, you mentioned you're in your 30s. Have you been able to balance genealogy with uh, with other careers or did at some point did you have to decide what you were going to dedicate your career to? Well, you know, that's a good question. And I did have to kind of juggle back and forth because I had, you know, the passion and, and the drive to want to be a ge genealogist. I tried to start up my own business. Uh, actually, I did start my own business. It was called Genealogical Networking Services. And um, I went back to school and learned how to do computers because <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, so I started up my own little entrepreneurship and I was getting requests all across the country. It was amazing. It was amazing. I still have those those inquiry letters to this day and uh, they were all over the country. People were asking me to do this, that. Can you look this up? Native American, just anything you could think of. And uh, I, I, I had fun doing it. The only problem was uh, uh, people had a tendency to not want to pay you but they You're want right. you they want you to do the, the research first and then okay now send me a payment so it got to be kind of hard to make a living out of it but I, mm -hmm. I always had the passion for it so had to do other type of work just to you know pay the bills type thing but finally I was able to uh, just recently actually uh, five years ago I finally got a, a really nice job that goes right along with my genealogy i'm working for the school district here and ah. yeah i'm a records clerk and it's amazing how many people come in 
um, walk in or email or phone. They want to do research about this, that, and the other. And that's just right up my alley doing research. Ugh. And it ties right into the genealogy. So for the first time after so many years, I finally got, you know, they both together, genealogy and uh, just doing um, historical research, you know, and local research. So it's cool. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I know that you chronicled these discoveries that you made with your family in your first book, the Akitri. And um, yes, I'd yes. yeah, I would love to hear more. I know it's the Akitri oh. or Akitri. You yes. can pronounce it either way. <laughs> I know. I know. I say, I say Akitri and then I've heard people say, no, Aki, you know, and so, I know I wasn't you know, quite sure. So I just messed it up either yeah, way. <laughs> but I guess it's but, uh, my, my auntie who uh, she just recently passed away in St. Louis, Missouri, but um, she was my, um, my mother's sister and uh, she would take trips to Jamaica you know as often as she could and so she um she pronounced it aki and she sent me a picture of it and i put it in the book so the aki tree or a key tree depending on how you say it is native to west africa and it bears this red fruit that in due time yawns open to reveal dark black glossy seeds and this yellow spongy flesh and it's popular in caribbean dishes but if you try to eat that sucker before it's ripe your impatience might get rewarded with the very self-explanatory Jamaican vomiting sickness. Anyways, let it ripen and then cook it with cod and it's just supposed to be heaven on earth. Now, Stephen's book, The Aki Tree, has sepia-toned photographs of his ancestors and the silhouette of this tree behind them. And he told me that his first book was narrative fiction based on his family experiences and inspired by books like Alex Haley's Roots. But later he revised it to be purely nonfiction. It took about 10 years to do the research on that. And uh, my whole goal when I first started out was just to learn about my my uh, family on both my sides, my father and mother's side. I wasn't trying to like go all the way to, to Africa or anything like that. Just Just learning about the family. But every time I would go further back in history, I kept getting excited. I'm like, how far back can I go? <laughs> yeah, know, this yeah. is getting to be interesting now. I mean, because um, as we all know, you know, Abraham Lincoln, he ended slavery. We know that in 1865 mm -hmm. or 1863, some say, because the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and I, like I had mentioned to you earlier, I found my parents or my uh, great-grandparents on the 1870 census. That was the first time, Ali, that um, African-Americans were listed on a federal census for the first mm. time as far as everyone yeah uh, because it was five years after this the uh, end of the civil war and so now everyone was just you know a regular citizen now, you yeah. know the way, the way it was supposed to be so but if you want to go further back 1860 well then you're going back into the old system of things mm -hmm. you know when um the south was at its peak and and the cotton was king and all that so 1860, that's when you really get into the, the struggle of trying to identify who your, your parents are and your, your, your ancestors, I should say. Now, for some people, they have what they call free people of color. I, I learned about that as I became a genealogist. There were some people who had the designation of they were a f free person of color, meaning they were emancipated or they were set free long time ago, maybe 1800s. Um, and their family just were free all the way up and right through the Civil War, everything. They were just cruising. They were free. And so they never had that, that problem of being found on a census record because their family had always been free. 
free people of color, by the by, are referred to as free people of color. And just the distinction is a very painful reminder that they were the exception and not the rule. Stephen explored the beginnings of the laws that would shape and scar the nation for the last 400 years in his book, 1619, 20 Africans, their story and discovery of their black, red, and white descendants. Um, but in Hampton, Virginia, there was a a little ship that came in in August of 1619, and it had 20 Africans on it. And they were taken off of a of a slave ship that was heading to Mexico, Veracruz, Mexico. And some pirates uh, attacked the ship and took about 50 Africans off of the off of the slave ship. And it was a true story. And 20 of them came to the coast of Virginia, Hampton, Virginia, and they they let him go. They traded him for food. And long story short, I, I did this book based on this, and DNA is so interesting now, too. Everyone is taking a DNA test, trying to find out about their ancestry. You know, we have TV shows about it. Please see Finding Your Roots, Genealogy Roadshow, Faces of America, and Who Do You Think You Are? The latter of which, fun fact, is produced by Lisa Kudrow, a.k.a. Phoebe from Friends. And she even did an episode on Courtney Cox and... Okay, and, and she was hoping that, you know, her family were good people and no one, like, murdered anyone. And it turns out her ancestors murdered the King of England. I looked into this further and a red-hot poker may have been involved, but we don't need to go into it. Anyway, part of discovering one's genealogy is facing that, guess what? Just because they're your ancestors doesn't mean that they're the protagonist of the story. So it's easy as a white person to think that, say, Black History Month doesn't involve you. But if you live in America, it does. It involves all of us. And with knowledge comes context. And with context comes understanding. And DNA tests are expanding that knowledge more and more. Uh, it's just phenomenal. And so I took my DNA test and come to find out that I have some connections to these first Africans. So that's what this latest book is about. And um, so the further you go back in time, it just gets harder and harder to locate um, your family if you were, um, if you're, you know, if your ancestry or your inheritance was uh, slavery, but it can be done. It can be done. And I'd love to hear more about your your personal family discovery and what that was like for you when you were tracing your genealogy, tracing your family history, and you made that discovery that that you had obviously relatives who were slaves in the South. What was that like for you? Wow. Um, yeah. To connect. It was amazing. I interviewed so many different relatives, so many different cousins. Most of my father's side had passed away, but my mom's was still around. But it was just amazing just interviewing people. But then, um, as we mentioned earlier, we didn't have the internet back in those days, so you can't just get on uh, Google and, you know, type in a a, a web search and uh, click on a, a document and, you, you know, print out your family tree. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work that way. So I had to travel around. I didn't go fly, but I would get on the ground bus and I would just travel to mm -hmm. Mississippi, to Kansas. I went to Virginia, South Carolina, just interviewing people, going to courthouses. And um, I'll never forget this day, Ali, September 22nd, 1994. I'll never forget that day. That was the day that I took a trip down to Duck Hill, Mississippi to meet the great-granddaughter 
of the man who my ancestors worked for. <laughs> it was wow. it was deep. Yeah, we corresponded over the phone, and uh, she uh, said she'd be happy to meet me, her and her husband. And uh, I told her about my book and that I'm trying to write this information. I'm trying to research my family, and I just would like to know where my ancestors lived and where they worked at and uh, the land and just everything about it. I just wanted to breathe it, touch it, mm -hmm. smell it, whatever. I wanted to get down there and see that. She says, come on down. You just let us know when you come in and we'll, we'll meet you. So I planned my trip, went down there in September 1994, and uh, we met at the local bank there. It's a little small town. And uh, we just embraced. And uh, we we just embraced and we just made uh, made a really deep connection. We're still friends to this day. Well, actually, her son and his wife are are uh, friends with me because she's now passed on. Uh, she was about 75 years old in 1994, but she wow. just opened her arms and we just, I had to rent a car and I drove up from Jackson, Mississippi, rented a car, drove up the uh, Interstate 55 and got into town there. And uh, she hopped into to my car. <laughs> she didn't know me from Adam. The first time we met, you know, she hopped into the passenger side and she tell her daughter drove her up there and she tells her daughter, okay, I'll see you later on today. Bye bye. And she just, <sighs> she's that confident to get into the car with me, a total stranger. Mm -hmm. But that's the connection we had that day. It was amazing. It was amazing. I'll never uh. forget it. And she took me to the old family site, uh, the old plantation home that, that her uh, great grandfather uh, lived in. And she took me to the family cemetery. And some of my ancestors were buried in the, her family cemetery. It was just, it was just amazing. And uh, yeah. Just a side note, I was casually fully crying in my recording closet at this point. I just was taking notes the whole time, and that was a turning point, and that just broke through to finding another generation of my family. And long story short, Allie, by the time it was said and done, I was able to work my way all the way from starting in 1920 and went all the way back to like the 1700s. Oh my 1730s. God. 1730s, yeah. Couldn't believe it. I, I had no idea that I could go that far back. But I had paper documents from the courthouses and um, estate records that just, I just followed the paper trail, you know, just like, you know, Perry Mason and Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. had <laughs> followed the paper trail. I heard you had a reputation for um, resourcefulness. So Stephen followed those clues and it led him to Virginia in the 1730s and an archived estate inventory. You know, when somebody dies, they have to do an estate inventory right. of all your property. And mm -hmm. um, they did that back then too. Nothing, you know, pretty much the same. And so this uh, person's plantation home that these this paper trail pointed me to, his name was Colonel George Eskridge. And uh, he uh, had Africans that were working on his, he had a tobacco plantation. Tobacco was mm -hmm. the, the main crop, I guess, at that time. And he had, uh, on his estate inventory when he died, he died in 1735, they had to do an estate inventory of all his belongings. And, of course, unfortunately, they listed, you know, at, you know human beings as property human at Human beings, okay, yeah. We, we get that, you know, that's how they did. But they were African names when I looked on the, on the inventory. They were African names. I couldn't believe it. And so, uh. through a little bit of more research, I was able to identify one of them. And uh, 
it was just it was just amazing just amazing. You've had a long history of going into, you know, musty bookshelves and microfiche and all the yes. way up to internet into DNA tests and, you know, genealogy. The field expands, it seems like, you know, every year with technology. And yes. on one hand, you know, we learn that we're literally like all related, but on the other, it, it uncovers some really painful truths. Yes. about our histories and about slavery and about colonialism. Um, how do you feel as a genealogist that can affect us emotionally? Do you think that can bring up pain or do you think it can help heal something or is it empowering? I think that, I think that initially it, it does cause a little bit of pain and un yeah. uncomfortableness because for some reason in our country of, you know, America, United States of America. Um, I don't think we've fully ever grappled with what happened uh, after 1865. Um, I don't think we ever really had any discussions about race and, um, you know, that that topic. I just don't think we ever really dealt with it. And uh, because there were so many things that came on <laughs> right after, you know, okay, slavery ended, everybody's celebrating, da, da, da. And then, boom, we had a whole set of other problems that came right after that, you know, with Jim Crow and segregation and, the, you know, the KKK and on and on and on and on. And so, we never really dealt with it. And so, I kind of look at it like this here. It's just like a person that's maybe... Um, has an addiction, you know, maybe um, have an addiction with uh, alcohol or drug addiction or whatever it is. Um, the first step is acknowledging that you have a problem. And then you discuss it with someone and you try to get help. And the more you discuss it and you acknowledge it, it starts to heal you and you start to feel better. Stephen notes that South Africa's post-apartheid public hearings held by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which it was then called, allowed victims of abuses and violence to speak out and explain the physical and emotional impacts of apartheid. And it also gave those who perpetrated violence a chance to ask for amnesty and forgiveness. Stephen thinks that having a similar healing process in America could lead to better understanding, compassion, and healing. If you uh, study your roots, your roots and you find that you have people that are in your family that are of a different ethnicity or a different culture, embrace it and get to know who they are. Reach out to them and uh, and introduce yourself and. You know, because they're your family, you know, they're your family. And mm -hmm. the DNA test that's so popular now that people are finding that out more and more that we're all so more closely connected than we ever have been because we're all related, really, when you when you look at it, you know. And so yeah. it is painful at first, but the, just acknowledging that we had a problem, but that we want to move forward and uh, just be and be in peace and uh um, that's one thing about doing genealogy for me is that I have to look at it. It is a little emotional sometimes, but I have to put that aside and put that in one little uh, compartment and mm -hmm. look at it from the perspective of this is history. And I want to learn about history. I want to learn about people and because uh, we're all the same. And so if we do that, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to do fine. We're going to be fine. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. How has the advent of 
you know, consumer DNA test changed what you do and how you research? It's very interesting. It's a very interesting question. When I first took the test and got the results back and uh, all these, I had like about, I think it was like 2,000, at least about 2,000 connections of people that were related to me. And they did it from, obviously from the highest ratio down to the lowest ratio. And so I could look at my top 20, you know, and I say, wow, these are really close to me. So Stephen has taken two DNA tests and his father, before he passed away, also took one. And their raw data led them to the Eskridge family name he was already familiar with, which validated the technology for him. He was like, oh, this works. But sometimes results might surprise you. Turns out that iconic Lizzo's iconic Truth Hurts genealogical ripper. I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm a hundred percent that bitch. Isn't a hundred percent her brainchild. So a London musician with the handle Mina Linus tweeted that exact line in February 2017 and then it became a meme and Lizzo liked the meme. She tossed it in a song and the original tweeter was like, uh, hello, excuse me, Lizzo. That is my DNA joke. And some legal things ensued, but fences have been mended. And fast forward to October when Mina tweeted out, quote, I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm accredited writer for the number one song on Billboard. All's well that ends well. And I'm getting ready to take another DNA test here um, shortly because there are so many companies out there and people are choosing which companies they want to do it with. So uh, either my cousins haven't taken the test on the companies that I took it with, or they haven't taken one at all. Or it could mean that my family that I thought was my family, <laughs> maybe right. they weren't my family, you know? You never know. If you take a DNA test through 23andMe, say, but then you have relatives who have taken it through, like, Ancestry, does that mean that you just might be, like, not connecting because exactly. you're using different companies? Exactly, exactly. And that's that's the point, is that I want to take another test through another company. Uh, actually, I do want to take it through Ancestry because mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of more of my family, in fact, I know I've heard that more of my cousins are taking it on the Ancestry uh, one. So I want to get on board and, and just see how I line up with that. So but 23andMe, uh, it's a great company. I've gotten a lot of good uh, hits and connections with that. That did validate that, that this, this DNA stuff is for real uh, because I did know their names and they did show up and they were, they were on my mother's side, but none on my father's side showed up. How does that work? Um, and I might have to look this up, but how does that work with like the mitochondrial Eve and things coming down from the X chromosomes? Like, do we tend to find out more about our, our maternal sides when we take DNA tests than we do paternal? Mitochondrial Eve, side note, has become the pop cultural name of the most recent known maternal ancestor that we all share because mitochondrial DNA is only passed on through maternal lineage. Scientists do not love this biblical name as it's misleading from a narrative standpoint, let's say. But this mitochondrial Eve is what's called an MRCA, most recent common ancestor. And she can vary depending on genetic discoveries. So if a more recent common ancestor lineage is discovered, for example, it's a different mitochondrial leaf. But yes, all related, all of us, wild. For a female that wants to do genealogy and using the DNA tool, to, in order for them to learn more about their father's side, they need to try to uh, see if they have a brother that can take the test or 
their father or an uncle, you know, anyone on the paternal side. This side note is called a Y chromosome test, and it's helpful to figure out, say, if two families with the same surname are indeed genetic relatives. So ladies, surprise your dad or brother with a DNA test. It's a gift that just keeps giving you information. And then, of course, there's the mitochondrial DNA test you can do. Everyone has their mom's mitochondrial DNA, and this is helpful because historically, women's history can be erased, or at least very illegibly smudged by the taking of surnames. More on that later. Oh, and you can get single nucleotide polymorphism testing, which scans your DNA for variations in the CG and AT pairings. And they'll tell you what traits or diseases, or in some cases, parents you might share with folks in their database. And that's another thing, too, about these genealogy, uh, these DNA companies, is they're always updating their um the results. The results mm-hmm. get updated because more and more people are joining them, and so they're getting more hits. The DNA results keep updating, and you get more and more people that join, and you get new names that just keep popping up, and so... Hey. That's got to be the best email to get because I get those from 23andMe that'll be like, you have new relatives because my family's Catholic on both sides, which means there's a million of us. Oh, and, um, you took your, so, t- you took a, your test through 23andMe? Yeah, really? I did. And I, um, yeah, I have so many relatives wow. and my dad's one of 11. My mom's one of six. So we got a lot of us out there. And, um, but that's got to be the most exciting email to pop up in your inbox is that you have new relatives. Yes, totally. <laughs> yeah. totally. You've got to be like jackpot. <laughs> Man, totally. Yes. Um, and I actually, I, I told uh, our listeners that I was going to be talking to you today and uh, they sent in questions. Can I ask oh, yeah. you some questions from absolutely, them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, great. Like literally hundreds of questions oh, for you. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. Wow. Everyone's so excited. <laughs> Okay, but before we dive into your genealogical queries, as you know, each episode we donate to a relevant charity, and one that Stephen advocates for is blackpast.org. And Blackpast is dedicated to providing a global audience with reliable and accurate information on the history of African America and people of African ancestry around the world. And they aim to promote greater understanding through this knowledge and to generate constructive change in our society. They have over 6,000 pages of genealogical resources and history available and again are at blackpast.org. So that donation was made possible by some sponsors of the show, which you may hear about now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was BetterHelp. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. 
Okay, so a little fun fact about how we make the show. So right before it gets published, I do like the third pass on the edit in case I want to tweak anything before it goes out. And I always do laundry during that time because I need to listen to the show as if I were a listener who's doing something else while you enjoy facts about capybara butts. And I would like to thank EarthBreeze for making that whole situation more pleasant. So EarthBreeze has these eco sheets that we use that I love. They're not a liquid or a powder. They're not a capsule. They look like a dryer sheet, but it's this ultra concentrated laundry detergent. So I don't have to spill a bunch of soap all over my hands and pants, which happens every time I have that giant heavy laundry jug. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no wasteful plastic jug, which makes me feel good about myself. And we all need that. It works on everyday stains and odors, and it's just one more step to making laundry day easier. So go wash your clothes, but make it easier with EarthBreeze. And right now, Ologies listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. So go to earthbreeze.com slash ologies. That's earthbreeze.com slash ologies for 40% off your subscription. I use it while I edit this. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable and I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to obviously you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Rituals like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay. Let's hop into your questions. And so let's see. First, a uh, Patreon question. Uh, this was asked by Rachel Kasha, Jennifer Tran, and first time question asker Danielle Lavoie uh, asked, what's the deal with second cousins versus first cousins once removed? Um, Rachel Kasha says the whole once removed hurts my brain and I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll take the first part because that's easier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the second cousins. Um, would be like your, you have a, your first cousin, like mm-hmm. say you have your mother has a sister, 
which would be your aunt, and your aunt has children. Mm. And those children would be your first cousins. Cousins. Cousins twice removed and all that. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you feel better because <laughs> Yeah. If a genealogist who's um like published several books and is like <laughs> a consultant for PBS shows doesn't quite get it, that makes me feel so much better. Oh, because... my. Yeah, I tell you. <laughs> okay, side note, I looked up a flow chart for this and my soul hurt, but I think I got it. So your first cousin's child is your first cousin once removed. So your first cousin's kids' kids our first cousins twice removed. So removed is in regard to generations. So same grandparents, different generation. Now your second cousin, according to genealogy.com, is someone who has the same great grandparents as you, but not the same grandparents. So third cousins have the same great, great grandparents. Fourth cousins have the same great, great, great grandparents and so on. So that cousin removed business is about generations. Unlike on my Italian side, feuds, blistering, family shattering feuds. In my family, my dad's, you know, one of 11. And then each of those uh, siblings have a lot of kids. And we just resort to levels like my grandparents are level one, my dad's a level two, that makes me a level three, if I'd have kids. And so at our family reunions, which are like, ginormous, literally different colored t-shirts so you know who's a level <laughs> two and who you're like whose kid is that and you're like i don't know they're in a yellow shirt they're a level four so right, it, right. it helps us a lot of people wanted to know about the reliability of sites like ancestry um maggie fraser who's a first-time question asker wants to know about reliability michelle minor lisa uh m Kendall Burnell, Jesse Cole, Bennett Garber, who's also a first-time question asker, uh, Deanna Wan, and Henna H. They all kind of want to know, can we rely on these? Yes. Yeah? Cool. Good question. Very <laughs> good good question. Yeah. I have heard um, of different comments about different companies, and you definitely want to do your research and, mm-hmm. you know, know which company, uh, it, whatever company you choose to go with, know a little bit about and their ratings and how they're doing, how the people feel about them. And I've heard some things about Ancestry, um, pros and cons. Um, so I have heard that, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to find out because I'm getting ready to take my test with Ancestry, so I'll, I will know. But I have heard that they ask you different questions about, you know, putting in a, a profile. And mm-hmm. so you start putting in names like, well, this is my grandfather. This is my grandmother, my great grandfather. Boom, boom, boom. He was born in Maryland or, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, whatever. And if someone else on the other, another part of the country, they go in there and they, if one of their names matches with yours, just on the family tree, not, not the DNA part, but just, just the uh, profiles, they seem to, they'll send a message back and forth to each other that you might want to look at this person. This person might be interested or might be related to you Hmm. just by the names that you put on your profile. And so that's kind of something that makes you wonder, be careful because you may not have been able to fully establish those names that you're putting on your profile if they really are truly related to you. I mean, unless you have concrete proof, no, no problem. But if you're a genealogist and you've you know, you're doing the family tree and you've been following the paper trail, you know, the the old school methodology. That's just what it says on paper that these are your family. But how do you really know? You know, how what if somebody was uh, had a child out of wedlock, you know, so, you know, be be aware because that could throw you into um, the wrong direction if 
just because you match another person's profile just based on the names yeah. that may not it may or may not um you know hold water but but uh if you take the dna test and you're connected well then then you have something to work with but so i kind of was like well if i take this ancestry <laughs> test i'm not going to put any names right yet on my profile i'm going to just wait and see who yeah. pops up first and then i'll go from there because i don't want too many people you know it might give me the wrong leads you know what i'm saying so yeah um so yeah do your research and just kind of know what company that you're that you choose to go with you know along that line a lot of uh listeners like aaron jess lynn uh, maria kumro and conchetta gibson jess lynn is a first-time question asker um all asked about surnames uh oh. jess lynn asked that there's uh, mentions that there's a law in quebec canada that forbids a woman from taking her husband's surname after marriage and asked are there any cultures or countries in which women traditionally don't take their husband's name and does that ever cause issues when tracing back families wow yeah totally i have heard that too um that there are some cultures where they it's a maternal line and they the the the, the female just goes by her uh, maiden name is the surname. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say too that um, that happens. That happens to be a, a problem a lot in genealogy. Not a problem that cannot be overcome. And I have come across that even myself in my own research. Say I find a person on the census. Let's say her name is uh, Mary Johnson, just for example. Mm -hmm. um, but then if you go and you read further in the other columns of Mary Johnson's family line, it says that she's single. But then she has two or three children in her household, and listed as son, daughter, whatever, but they are her children. So then you have to ask the, yourself the question, she's single, but she has children. Okay. And then the children have different names. And so mm -hmm. sometimes I've had that problem where I, I'm trying to figure out, well, Mary Johnson, if I can't find her marriage certificate, to show that she that the, that these are her children from her husband i don't know if she's going if mary johnson is her married name or if that's her maiden name and so that happens sometimes where you have mm -hmm. you, it's a question mark that is a really big challenge with genealogy trying to locate the maiden names and the best thing that most genealogists are able to do is try to find a marriage certificate uh and if that doesn't work then um a death certificate sometimes will show mm. the maiden name. And if you can't find the marriage or the death certificate, it's, it's going to be a tough one. Just a quick aside. One study showed that in 1980, 98.6% of American women, almost 99%, took their husband's name after marriage. But that's declined in recent years to about 80%. Now, what percent of men adopt a new name after marriage these days? Mm, 3%. So this next tip is a revelation. The other genealogist rule is look at who's living next door. Oh. Look who's living next door or even a few houses down because mm -hmm. families tended to stay together. Families tend to stay together. And so your family that you found on the census might be living right next door to another family member. Ah. And so it's just amazing when you find that connection like that. And uh, yeah, I found that many times I've had that discovery and I was like, wow. I've been, I've spent mm -hmm. two years trying to locate nah. and here they were right living right next door. What? Were you there the whole time? And that kind of uh, brings me to a question. A lot of people asked, um, Anna Thompson, Conchetta Gibson, Jesse Dragon, Margaret Abacher, Rini, 
Chelsea O'Leary, Sarah Jean Horowitz, and Larissa. Uh, Larissa and Chelsea are both first-time question asters. And uh, Larissa asks, what's the best place to start to actually look into family history? What are some questions that we should be asking ourselves and our family and professionals like librarians in order to look into our history? Great question. Great question. They're all great questions. And, <laughs> yeah, and the first, yeah, obviously your, your, your listeners, they're, they're, they're the best. So yeah. The first, yeah. So the first thing to do when you want to get started on your genealogy is, uh, you know, ask, um, start assembling your uh, family tree, um, and ask questions from your family if they're still living, if your father is still living, your mother's still living, or grandparents, whoever's whoever's the most closest to you that's still alive, even your siblings. Sometimes your siblings have more of a recollection than, than mm. you do. I know sometimes my brother be coming up with stuff that I don't even remember. And, he, <laughs> and he'd be telling me, yeah. And I said, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So <laughs> just sit down with a pen and paper and just start uh, making a list on the paternal side, your father's side, and the maternal side, your mother's side. And um, and then just start going from there. List your parents first, and then list their parents. Um, put down where they were born, obviously, if you have that information, where they died. If you could find the county name of, of where they were born or died, that even helps too. Find out what year they were married, like your grandparents. Find out how did they meet each other? That's always been such a fascinating question to me is how did the grandparents meet each other yeah. or the great grandparents? How did they meet each other? Because just because you were born in Chicago, Illinois, and you died in New Orleans, Louisiana, for example, how did great grandpa meet great grandma or how did grandma meet grandpa? You know, and then you find out, oh, they got married in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, mm -hmm. and then that. What were they doing then, there? Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's the point is what were they doing there? Was their family there in Atlanta? So write all that down of where they got married, because those could be clues later on down the road. They may not mean anything now, but they might later. And so just start putting a chart down. Father's side on one side of the paper, mother's side on the other side, and just work your way back on who their grandparents and great grandparents were, and just list uh, as much as you can. And then whatever whatever blanks you have, fill in the blanks by interviewing your relatives and you know the aunts and the uncles and um, the grandmothers and the grandfathers, and try to fill those blanks in as much as you can. And uh, go to the family closet, you know, or wherever. Whoever's the one that's holding the records in the family, you know, consult them. You know, there's always somebody in the family that's got all the the marriage records. They've got all the, the pictures, the photographs, um, the obituaries and the death notices and all that sort of thing and the birth certificates. So go to that person and and just plow through all that and write all that down. Maybe make photocopies if they will allow you to. When you interview, you know, someone that's really old. How old? What does that mean, really <laughs> old? <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm really old. But when you interview uh, a parent or a grandparent, I even ask them, is it okay if I, inter if I can record it? Yeah. You know, record it. And that way you're not missing anything, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's and you also like learn so much about your family. Who mm -hmm. doesn't want to learn more about, you know, people's histories that are right around them? I Absolutely. think that's such a good bonding project, too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So treat yourself to a nice new notebook, brew a pot of tea, and then sit down and interrogate a loved one gently.
A few people, including Beatriz Belaclava, B. Wilson, and first-time question asker Lizzie, for example, um, they all wanted to know about adoption. And Lizzie asks, my dad is adopted and knows some of his biological family's background, but what does that mean for our genealogy? Do we trace the adopted family's history? Do we trace the bio family's history? Both? Excellent question. Um, I would say do both if you feel like it. If you have a yearning for wanting to know both, go for it. I know that in my family, my grandfather, who I met, I never did meet my father's parents, so I never did know my paternal grandfather or grandmother. They both passed before I was born. But um, on my mom's side, my mother remarried. And so her husband was always, he was the one I always called grandpa, but he was not my biological grandpa. But to this day, I always, he will always be my grandfather. And so I, I did a genealogy search on his family. I wanted to know about him and found out about that he had Native American heritage from Tennessee. And, you know, I found out that he had a Aunt Minerva and she lived to be 100 years old. And, and, oh. I, and I recorded that. I still have that on tape, cassette tape, by the way. <laughs> I need mm -hmm. to update that. So I would say that for adoptions, why not look at both sides, the, the biological yeah. and the adopted side? Absolutely. And for adoptions, I've had people that have contacted me over the years that have wanted to get help and try to locate their biological parents. What about turning over some hefty forensic boulders? I had a few people, Julie Bear, Laura Merriman, Stephanie Berhertes, and first-time question asker April Perry. April Perry wrote in and said, I'm a forensic scientist, a DNA analyst more specifically, and our field has been all abuzz with genealogy in the past few years as cold cases are being solved using public database searches. And April is curious mm. what your take is, including some possible ethical dilemmas. How do you feel about it? Yeah, that's uh, been on the news recently here. Some people are kind of leery about putting their DNA information on a website where law enforcement agencies can come in and check into that. And uh, they have cold cases where they're trying to solve and you might know some information about it. It's kind of scary, yeah. you know? I don't know. That's, that's a good question. If it can create closure, to someone, I wouldn't mind participating in in solving something, but of course I wouldn't want anything to <laughs> to turn back on me, you know. But I'm clean. I haven't done anything, so I'm good. I have a clean yeah. conscience. But I guess you know you have to think about that if you you know if you <laughs> when you take a DNA test, you're susceptible to whatever is out there. So you know, just be careful. I know there's a lot of pros and cons on that. That's that's a, a very very big question right now. It's such a new quandary. It's such a new ethical dilemma that we've just never encountered before. So I think a lot of people exactly. are still wrapping their brains around the benefits of getting closure or apprehending someone versus the how, from a molecular level, invasive that is on you know, yes. some of your, your actual genes. So yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think a, a lot of people are probably super ambivalent, meaning, you know, they just seeing the, the good and the bad. Um, mm -hmm. And Rachel C. wrote in, she had a great question, and said, I've heard that out of a group of three people, two black and one white, it is just as likely for a black and white person to be more related as it is for the two black individuals to be more closely related. If that is really the case, then what the heck is race anyway, and why does it persist in modern times? That is so true. That is so true. I mean, race is just, um, it's just... Uh, a classification. I mean, even now we have, when we fill out forms, they have check boxes where you can mark whatever ethnicity you wish, but they're now they're becoming more where 
you can mark that you're a bioracial and even triracial. And so that's a problem for the governments. They want they want to have solid data so that they know who are who's in our country and da da da. But yeah. I say, hey, why not just embrace all? Why pick? Why do you have to pick one or the other right. when you have so many that are part of your DNA? So, you know, I haven't. I have to admit, I've been just picking the one African American. But um, I was, there was a few times where I, I did pick biracial um, because I am. Uh, if I can remember the my ratio, I am. Uh, Oh, I'll just round it off. I'm about 80% um, African and about 18% European, which right. includes Scandinavian, British, and then 2% Native American and Southeast Asian, which blew me away. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Southeast Asian part, you know, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, type like that, uh, and the Native American part. I'd love to learn more about my Native American ancestry. In regards to that, Race is just just a classification. We, we're all related. And uh, it's interesting, uh, the book that I just recently came out with, uh, 1619, Africans. One of the points I mentioned in the book is that when those Africans came to Virginia in the year 1619, uh, they didn't come as slaves as we know it as slaves uh, that come to our mind. They were indentured servants. And so they didn't have the designation of being slaves. So what that meant was uh, indentured servants, um, just like those that were coming from England, um, they worked for a certain period of time. They were indentured to, um, to, the, to their employer. And so those Africans were indentured. Once they served their time, they were given their freedom, just like, just like all the other uh, indentured servants. Virginia wasn't until 1705 is when the slavery laws you know, the really hardened slavery laws came into being was in the year 1705. So prior to that, there were a lot of African-American families in colonial America, uh, colonial Virginia, who uh, were not slaves. They were not under slavery. They had a hard life. Yes, they had a very hard life. Uh, many of them were taken advantage of, no doubt about it, but they were not um, classified as slaves. So what I'm going with this is that many of these Africans, as they had children and their children had children, there was probably about two or three generations of African-Americans who were free in this country before and I've got before in big, large letters, before the slavery laws were even enacted. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. And a lot of people don't know about that. And I didn't know about it until I took my DNA test and found out that I was related to um, some of these early African-American families. And so what I also found out was that a lot of the uh, African families that were uh, free in the early part of our colonial history, they were intermarrying with the Irish, with the Native Americans, with the Germans. They were intermarrying. They were becoming a family. And so, but many of the American families that are in this country today, whatever surname you want to use, Johnson, Smith, whatever, if your family's been in this country for, you know, going back to colonial times or even the American Revolution times, chances are you are a mixed family. Chances are you're a mixed family. You know, mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form, in one way or another, in Native American or, you know, um, it's because it's just a fact. And But that is not taught in our schools. It's not taught in our history books that um, there were at least two or three generations of free people 
before slavery laws even were passed, Virginia as kind of what everybody looks to as the um, the uh, the mother of the of the slavery laws. But and everyone other other states looked at Virginia, you know, whatever they passed, they'll pass. But yeah, there was quite a few years, quite a few decades before slavery even got entrenched. And so that that allowed a lot of families to have freedom. There was a lot of African families that were able to buy land. You couldn't do that as a slave. You couldn't buy right. land. You could they could. uh they could uh, sit on juries. They could uh, barter and trade. It was just, uh, it's, and a lot of people just don't know the history of that. And so, again, there was a lot of intermarriage. A lot of the uh, Africans uh, were marrying Irish women and Scottish women because there mm-hmm. was a shortage of African women. And so, there's a lot of intermixture in our in our society today. And so, your uh, listener brings up a very good question there uh, uh, that, uh, you know, chances are. If if you have three people and if you're white and the other one's black, you're probably more related, just as mm-hmm. much related as the two persons that are of the same race. Definitely. And did, was that a discovery also that you made in your own family with your sister-in-law? Yes, my sister-in-law. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, my sister-in-law. This this blew me away. Is uh, uh, Yeah, this is a perfect example. Is um, um, my wife's sister, which would be my sister-in-law. She has children, and we went to go visit one time, and we're sitting around the the breakfast table there in a restaurant, chit-chatting, and my sister-in-law's uh, daughter says, well, yeah, I can remember old grandma, you know, she was uh, from Mississippi, and she used to cook so well, and I remember all these different dishes she would make. She said she was from Jackson, Mississippi, and her, uh, and I said, oh, really? Well, what what was her what was her name? And she said, "Well, she was Grandma Grantham. Her maiden name was Grantham." And I almost fell off my chair. I said, "Grantham, that's <laughs> that's a name that's come up in my family research." Well, when I get back home, I'm going to look that up because that's very interesting. I said, so "Maybe my, some of my family members maybe knew, you, you know, your gr- grandmother's family." So when I got back home that night, and I went through the records, and and uh, I said, "I'll be doggone," but. These, uh, my sister-in-law's children are related to me because, <laughs> because when I took my two, 23andMe test, there was one genetic cousin that we had a connection with. This was like 2011. And me and her, we had communication back and forth trying to figure out how we were connected. We couldn't figure out a thing. But she sent me her family tree and her family name was Grantham. Her, her ancestor, oh her grandpa. It was just amazing. In his book, 1619, Stephen writes of the encounter, quote, We might be related. We joked. I was black and they were white. When I later got home, I looked up the information my sister-in-law's daughter gave me about her paternal grandmother. Turns out it wasn't a joke after all, that my sister-in-law's children and I were related. So if everyone learns a little about their genealogy, chatter over waffles is about to get way more interesting. If you hadn't asked over breakfast what was her name, you'd never, never would have known know, that. Never would have known that. Never would have known that. Yeah. If you weren't Sherlock Holmes. Man. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a second. Oh, Get your notepad up. Yeah. And we embraced it. We we just loved that little facet. I mean, we loved each other even before we knew that, but that just kind of, you know, put a little spice into our conversations now every time mm-hmm. we, we meet and we can bring that up. And so it's just a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, race is just, is, uh, color is just, it's just nothing. It's just a classification. We are all mm-hmm. related. 
Stephen says that the next book he's working on, which will be his third, will get deeper into how we're all related. And I realized just then that this episode would come out near the start of Black History Month, which is in part a celebration of the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and abolitionist Frederick Douglass. I told Stephen that International Women's Day kind of pisses me off because it's like, hi, here's your 365th share of the year pie. And I asked him if he feels that way about February. Like this country was literally built by people of color. But it was conceived first by history professor Carter Woodson in the 1920s and finally recognized by Gerald Ford in the 1970s. Stephen says that he too feels it should be more than a month, but that... I think it's just a good opportunity to educate people, all of us, uh, even um, uh, even for everyone, everyone. When I say everyone, I mean including African-American. Everyone to be educated, re-educated about just uh, getting along with one another. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said that that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. You know, we don't uh, judge one another based on the color of our skin, but on the basis of our character. And so that's what it's all about is just uh, embracing one another and just getting closer as, as a human family because we need each other. This this uh, world is has its ups and downs, <laughs> as we know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we, we all need to stick together and just be civil. And I think about, you know, colonial America and how you know, when the first Africans came here, uh, well, I shouldn't say the first African American. That's going to be that's that's going to be some coming out of my next book. <laughs> Who were the first? But uh, yeah, those that came in in 1619, how they were just treated um, just like everybody else, and then mm -hmm. um, the slavery laws came along and just took away everything they had. But think of the Native Americans and what they've gone through. I mean, goodness yeah. gracious! And that's mm -hmm. why I'm really interested to want to learn about uh, that. But but yeah, Black History Month is. Uh, I think is still needed to as an opportunity to uh, talk about things that we need to talk about to, to acknowledge yeah. and to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Now from the biggest issues to perhaps some sillier or petty difficulties in the job of genealogy. And uh, the last two questions I always ask every guest is um, what is the hardest thing about genealogy or the most annoying thing? Is it, uh, is it waterlogged, uh, Books, anything that just is really difficult about genealogy or this just maybe hesters you at all, even if it's petty. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one thing that kind of irks me is someone will take their DNA test. They will log on to the website. They will download their data. They will click, yes, I do want my information to be posted on this website. Here's my email address. And then when you connect and you find out that, oh, I'm related to this person, I would like to know more about you because some of the names that you have on your profile match my family. And then you reach out to that person and they don't even reply back. That's, oh. That one just really gets me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, like why on. did you want to put your email address on there in the first place? <laughs> you know, if you're not going to correspond. So that one, that one's kind of, 
That, one that makes sense. Yeah. So if you ever, if anyone ever gets an email from a long lost relative, reply to them. Yes. It's worth it. It's reply. Worth, yeah. Do not sit on that email. What is your favorite thing about genealogy? What just like fills you with butterflies or just makes you love it? Wow. The thing that makes me always love genealogy is uh, being able to go on the hunt, go on the search to try to find, to find someone's brick wall, someone who you know, and what I mean by brick wall for any of your listeners is you just coming to a point where you can't go any further in your research. Got to break through it somehow. You just, you come to a brick wall, you just, you've exhausted all your avenues and you just don't know where to go. You just don't know who this person is, where they were, where, who their parents were or whatever the, the, the question is. And I just love to take that brick wall and try to see if I can go through it. I just love that. And, <laughs> you know, just take it on that challenge. And, and then once you find him, you're like, oh, yes. Like, <laughs> you know, this is just wonderful. Love it. Do you wear a cape? Do you have a oh, big yeah. pipe and a cake? And a <laughs> I got a cape on right now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a big mustache. Yeah. One of those yeah, hunter hats. Right. With the old pipe. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so find the most wonderful, smart people and ask them the stupidest questions and before you know it you might be sitting on a plane and discover that the person next to you is your fifth step cousin-in-law four times removed and you'll kind of know what that means and you might know them the rest of your life so to get copies of Stephen hank's books you can go to the links in the show notes or inkwater press you can also find links to the sponsor urls and blackpast.org in the show notes we are at ologies on twitter and instagram i'm at ali ward with one l on both so follow along let's be friends uh, ologies merch is available at aliward.com thank you to shannon feltis and bonnie dutch of the podcast you are that they manage the merch and thanks to aaron talbert for adminning the ology podcast facebook group thank you jared sleeper of the mental health podcast my good bad brain for the assistant editing and of course to a guy who's like a bro Stephen ray morris who hosts the Purcast and see jurassic right which are about kitties and dinosaurs nick thorburn of the band islands wrote and performed the theme music and you know if you stick around past the credits you get a secret and this week i'm going to tell you i drove to an ex-boyfriend's house in the middle of the night we dated for like four months a decade ago, but in the parking lot of the apartment complex, I remember there was a lemon tree that was overloaded with fruit way back then. And this was not just any lemon tree. This is a Meyer lemon tree, which we all know has like way better lemons. Regular lemons are like a Mounds bar. Meyer lemons, they're like an almond joy. They're just better. I think technically there's some type of orange, but the point is from memory, I drove through the LA Hills alone at 10 PM. I felt like such a creep. And I found the side street and the lemon tree was still there with literally hundreds of Meyer lemons. So I took maybe like eight or 10, I put them in a hat and I ran back to my car. Now, granted, he hasn't lived there in like 10 years, but it still felt dangerous and skeevy and very thrilling to have a bowl of the best lemons on my counter. I've been pulverizing them in a pitcher and drinking it as lemonade. And then I eat their ragged flesh and skin like a buzzard. Also, if fruit overhangs a fence, technically it's legal to pick. Also, no one's going to ever eat all those lemons. There's so many lemons. Okay, so good. All right, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, litology, nanotechnology, meteorology, 